I just couldn't get the hang of it. I honestly thought I was going to die. It was, uh, you know, an world has got that like long straight with a slight bend in. And I did not, I felt like we we're doing about 400 Ks an hour. And I'm just thinking I've got no strength holding this, these narrow little things on the handlebar. And here we go. And I'm just like, I've got, I feel like the leathers don't, you know, I've never had to crash in leathers. Don't know how well they work. It just doesn't feel like much. <laughs> Welcome to Last on the Breaks, the MotoGP podcast with myself, Matt Dunn, and joining me as ever, Fran Wilde, and you were just listening to our guest on today's show, the undisputed most successful downhill mountain biker ever, the GOAT, Greg Minnar, telling us about the only, one of the only times in his life that he actually thought he was going to die, and that was on the back of a two-seater MotoGP bike. Uh, but Fran, hello, how are you? Uh, what, are we mainly, what are we mainly talking about with Greg today, though? Well, there is that nice little nugget of a story from when he was on the back of the two-seater, plus a little bit more. He does get nervous in his own athletic endeavours, as you'll hear, but nothing quite like that. (laughs) Uh, So that's an interesting one, I think. But one of the biggest focuses is what it takes to stay at the top of a sport for two decades, as Greg has done. His interpretation of the phrase GOAT, for those of you who don't use that as probably too often as we do, greatest of all time that's what that means um and then stuff like running into brad binder at the local motocross track sport in south africa and being sort of one of those non-traditional sports you know not a spring buck something a little bit different uh, i think it's pretty good i think and we'll find out that greg's background his first passion was motorbikes yeah, quite right. So a little bit of background about Greg, because we appreciate that there's going to be some people listening who have come from Greg's fan base, want to hear what he thinks about motorcycles or even aspects of his career. There's plenty of that. But for those of you MotoGP fans who've never heard of Greg Minard before, well, he's very much like Valentino Rossi of Mountain Biking Century, which is, of course, the title of this episode. He started mountain biking on the world stage in the year 2000. In year 2001, he was the actual World Cup Series overall winner. Now, in mountain biking, there's a little bit of a difference the world championships is a single one day event which declares who the world champion is for the next year the world cup series is more like the motor gp championship which is the series that runs throughout the year i hope that quite makes sense but greg it, that really bothers me yeah. because it's kind of backwards as to how most other sports define these things <laughs> quite yeah. and it's exactly the same in road cycling as well so it's, it's a bit of a difficult thing to get your head around but greg been uh, the most successful most decorated uh, rider in terms of world championships and World Cup overall victories as well and ahead of the leaderboards in terms of wins as well. Greg really has seen it, done it, fought off all competitors that have uh, come his way over the last two decades although he's got a real task ahead of him with the likes of Loic Bruni and the current state of play in the mountain bike uh, field as well. You'll hear more about that a little bit later on. But Fran, I guess to discuss the meaning of go, that's not really anybody that we could discuss it better than uh, Greg Minnar. Yeah, definitely. I think it's always interesting to get the thoughts of fans and a load of different people from different parts of a sport. What does GOAT mean? Who is it? Or why is it not someone that often gets touted around? But it's also super interesting to hear from someone with experience of being called that, but also being a super normal guy and not walking around with some sort of homemade crown, deciding that that's who he's going to be forever. 
So I think it's quite good. But that's our question for you guys before we head into the episode. What do you think makes the greatest of all time in any sport or any kind of situation where there is that? There's often such different arguments for it. Is it about the stats and the numbers? Is it about raw talent? But then how do you judge that raw talent? Uh, Is it about more the level of success when they were at their peak? Is it the rivals that they beat? It's an interesting conversation, I think, definitely. What what do you think is the most important kind of... It's a, it's an interesting one, because I, I would definitely not contest anybody who says, because as a mountain bike fan, I am one of the people who would say, yep, Greg, undisputed, go. But also, I think for, for me, and the overall sort of meaning of it, I think the level of influence that person has on a sport, whether they're able to change the culture of that sport, dictates as well if they're able to be a goat or not. I don't think just numbers straight come into it. But then also... I like the thought of there being um, people who say, oh, well, this person is the greatest person to ever ride a a bicycle or a mountain bike. You know, that phrase gets turned around a lot with Casey Stoner, for example. But you can't say Casey Stoner's the GOAT because he's only got two world championships. Really? Well, uh, that's the question. So, (laughs) you know, guys, let let us know what you think. Um, uh, What do you think as well, Fran? I mean, which which school of, of GOAT are you in? I find this more difficult in MotoGP. I think maybe because there's been such a massive difference in the equipment, the rivals, everything throughout eras. Mm. So I would find it quite easy maybe to sit down and say, in my opinion, this person is the best of this era. This is the best of this. Like we talked a little bit off air as well. I like that. But I find it hard to quantify to really put my... uh, my weight behind one or the other on a general scale. I find it much easier in Formula One. Yeah. For me, it's just like stats don't matter. It's out and center. Don't at me. But then other people will say, well, you can't say we'll that. absolutely you? So tear you down. You know, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the most interesting. I think there's one undeniable thing come from all this, which we don't actually discuss in the episode, but there is such a thing as a greatest in every era, you know, rather than all time. That's probably a, a more easy thing to, to decipher. So, yeah, I guess let us know what you think about that. And also, just get comfy before you listen to this one because Greg is such a pleasure to listen to. He's so chill and, yeah, just got some great stories to tell. Definitely. So without further ado then, please keep it nice and kind in your debates in the comments. We know people can get quite passionate about these things. Uh, hope you enjoy the episode and with no further ado, here we are talking to Greg Minar. Thanks for setting this up. Hey, such an honor to speak to you genuinely we've we've had some cool guests lately but you're you're definitely up there with the the people i'm most excited to speak to i think that stands for both of us doesn't it fran yeah definitely it should be i think hopefully we've got some interesting parallels between our sports yeah but also you know yeah i don't know we've got a lot to talk about i hope um i hope you're not gonna put me on the spot no 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 i mean we want to worry it's not a quiz yeah yeah yeah, yeah. too badly yeah like uh, please greg tell us of brad binder's first win and where he started from on the grid um but uh no no i mean i noticed that i know loads of mountain bike especially downhill guys are massive massive motor gp fans but i see i didn't realize you were one until i saw you commenting on the likes of john mcphee's instagrams and brad binder as well and i was like Craig's a Mert GP fan, and that's why we got in touch. So I guess, yeah, yeah that's right. right. You are you are a big fan then. Well, I, you know, I, I do follow it, but I wouldn't say I follow it close enough. Mm. Um, John McPhee I'd met through a friend of mine, Chaz Davies, and so being in Andorra, we hung out a bit and trained a bit together. So then you suddenly follow the sport a bit closely, you know, and a bit closer. So that's how I got to know John, and uh, I guess he's from near Fort Williams. So 
uh, we had a lot to talk about. And then um, I met Brad at, at our local motocross track uh-huh. uh, in December. And uh, I, I was just going out with the, the – I, I ride once a week. And they've been in December, we're all on holiday. And, and Brad's got a, a holiday house not too far from where I live. And they'd come up to the track to ride for the day. So we ended up having a good day out riding. And it was good to meet the guys. I mean, you know, being from South Africa, you'd think we'd have met somewhere along the line before. But it's a big country. We hadn't. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, it was cool. Awesome. Two well, really good guys. I'll tell you a bit of backstory for, for me and Fran then. Because, I mean, we, we Fran and I are flatmates as well as because we, we work together, of course, at Dawn, who run uh, MotoGP. Um, I first sort of heard of you about 10 years ago when I first got into mountain biking. Um, and then sort of got to know you more and more through the This Is PE series and the Syndicate YouTube videos. Um, now, like for everyone listening, we always at the end of the show so tell people, right, you have to go and look up this video and this video on the internet. So I'll say it now as well. Go and look up This Is PT series because it's it's an amazing insight into into sort of the mountain biking world. And because I was watching that, that's how Fran got to know you and, and mountain biking and everything. And it just looked so fun. Like if you've been with them since 2008, your team and just behind the scenes being part of it just looks awesome. So what what what's it like from inside the Santa Cruz Syndicate? <laughs> yeah, the Syndicate was like, you know, I joined the Syndicate in 2008. Uh, I just come off a, a massive sh- uh, shoulder injury. So when I joined the Syndicate, it was like this new team, new bike, the bike kind of um, helped me in areas where I felt like I needed help. I needed like a little bit more suspension to help me attack the technical stuff. Coming from all this injury, I felt like this was the right combo for me to do well. I ended up having a great year, and I've stayed ever since. The the team, you know, is initially uh, Rob Roscoe's dream. Rob himself was a, a professional skateboarder, so he understands the the pressures of competing and what it's like to be a sports person. And that's, you know, it's kind of unique in itself. And uh, he's kind of given us the freedom to to be the characters we are, and and this, I think, prolonged my career a little bit longer than I thought. So, uh, it, it's been great. It's it's been a great home. It is does uh, does feel like this family on the road racing, and uh, yeah, especially this year, it makes you realise you know being at home now in, in June where we should be racing, it, it does make you appreciate the family a lot more. Yeah, I can imagine. It must be a bit strange as well. Like I imagine it is for a lot of guys in the MotoGP paddock because a lot of your kind of quote-unquote social life ends up being at work, at events. When you travel, you always see the same people. You obviously get a really good bond with them. And then suddenly we're in this situation where it's like, hey, now I'm in my little bubble. And of course, everyone has friends and family and support at home, but it must be quite strange having been so long just in the same place after you're used to that kind of constant little circle. Yeah, you're so right. Like, I've never been home in, in June or even May. It's <laughs> it's the first time I've been home in May in, in 20 years. So um, it's the best time of the year to be here. And, yeah, you can see the weather behind. It's, it's, it's dry and sunshiny, so the trails are really good. And I'm just having a load of fun riding with my friends at home because I've never done that before. You know, I'm normally back home training, getting ready for the season. I always head over in about April. And then I'm back with my, my other friends, which are racing and, and the racing environment. So I have like these two different lives that I live. One back home here with my local mates and then another in Europe or, or the US with, with guys I race with. So 
yeah, it has been different, but it, it's also been a great experience being back home and a bit more relaxed. Can I, can I ask as well, wait, your your house, so we were in doing research leading up to this, saw the Rob Warner Meets video there. You were just having a house built. Is that yeah. the one that you're in there right now? Yeah. yeah so yeah. so that one is opposite, the valley opposite, the, the um, Peter Maritzburg downhill uh, world champs course. Is that right? The one that you won the... Yeah, so that's, that, um, that silhouette behind me is exactly that hill. Wow. So um, what's really nice now is I got myself an e-bike. <laughs> we're Santa Cruz Hitler, and yeah. uh, we've been rallying that forest flat out for the last couple of weeks. You know, we've been in lockdown, but we've been allowed to exercise, and that's within our restriction of five kilometer radius. So, that forest has never been so well used before. That's brilliant. How fun. That and sounds, the, yeah. Quite that... different to my forest, which is about 25 trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my local one is, uh, my local trails is an old railway line, which has got a bit of gravel over the top of it. It's very beautiful, but it's not quite as like, it's not a World Cup track, put it that way. Um, so the thing we, we wanted to, to go back to the very beginning of your career, because you've basically your start in mountain biking is pretty much the same start that most MotoGP races had your dad got you a pw50 is that right and you were you were doing motocross races but then somewhere around your early adolescence you started doing downhill mountain biking and then jumping over cars on motocross bikes can you fill in the gaps for us <laughs> on what on earth happened there well yeah my, my the first two wheels i got was a bmx and my dad had got this little bmx for me i think for my third birthday and I walked into the room where they were hiding it under all this bubble wrap. And I just started crying when I opened it up because I didn't want a bicycle. I wanted a motorbike. And my dad had raced. So growing <laughs> up, I'd seen, when I was a kid, seen all these videos and pictures of my dad racing. So uh, I think for my fourth birthday, he, um, I finally persuaded him to get a, a P50. And I started racing at four and a half. And I raced through until my early teens. And along the way, I was doing, we were doing these school kind of fate things and we, we didn't quite know what store we were going to do for the school. So me and my mates decided, we had seen it on TV, some guy jumping cars. I was like, this is pretty easy. We'll get my dad to uh, build up a ramp and we'll just jump cars, we'll raise some money and that can be our little uh, contribution to the school, at the school fate. And it ended up getting a little bit bigger and it got to like, I had to do shows at this royal show, like the biggest agricultural show in our in our city and and uh, that was kind of in a transitional period where my parents, for some reason, and we don't really know why, they had bought a bicycle shop. And my dad had made, had started BMX in South Africa, and I think maybe had some kind of tie, and that's what he decided to do. So he was still working at Coke, and my mom had to run the bike shop, and I was trying to race motocross, which, you know, if you're not training a couple times a week or at the track, your results start to slide, and I was just starting to lose interest. So... I started riding mountain bikes and, you know, I could go in the forest, you know, behind me now and, and go and ride by myself or with some friends. I didn't need my dad taking me out to, to go and train. And I uh, went off with my sister because she started racing and uh, I hate watching sport live. To me, like, that is the worst thing, you know. <laughs> like, going to MotoGP and watching all these guys sit on these amazing motorcycles having so much fun racing each other. I just get so jealous and envious. I want to be on the bike. It wouldn't, it wouldn't matter if I was a stone lost. That's that's to me in sport. You know, I'd rather be doing it than than watching it. So I get dragged along to this mountain bike race. My sister's racing, and I just decide, well, let me just race as well while I'm here. And uh, I kind of enjoyed it, and it just grew from there. 
That's pretty interesting then. So it was just kind of more that you lost that passion for motocross and because it takes so much more to be able to do that. Obviously, the equipment that you need, the places you need to go, You say your dad needed you to, to like take you there to uh, enable that. I guess mountain biking must have felt like quite a different freedom compared to that kind of crazy world of more structure and how you had to train and all of that. Well, it was in a sense. I mean, you still train just as hard, but you're right in saying that at a young age, you know, you need your, your parent or someone to be taking you to the track to making sure that the bikes are ready. I mean, you're eight, nine years old riding around a track, you know, you need you need some parental supervision or something. And uh, <laughs> I just didn't have that in my, in my early teens. My father was working at the bike shop and, you know, I, I couldn't go out and train. So this is where I took to mind bike. It's something I could do by myself. And, uh, you know, it, it was hard for my dad when, when we did, st- we, we started to race seriously because he was then involved like a, a motocross dad in, in a way of, oh, let's go to the race. Let's prep the bike. And I'm like, well, I've been doing it for the last couple of years by myself, so I'll keep doing it. And he's like, no, this is how it's done. And we used to butt, butt heads a lot, you know, trying to get ready for racing at, at a younger age. But uh, it, it's good we can laugh about it now. Yeah, watching like videos uh, about y- your background and stuff it does seem you and your dad, uh, you know, and you and your whole family very, very close, and you know, you do have a good relationship. I love that he was like a motocross dad, but in in mountain biking. <laughs> there's just the amazing meme I think where it's like a kid's motocross race, and there's a dad who's got clearly a massive bamboo cane, like trying to whip his kid as he comes past <laughs> and stuff. That's the sort of thing I imagine when someone talks about motocross dads. But um, oh geez, motocross dads when I grew up were were wild. I mean. My dad was definitely not, you know, uh, when I say a motocross dad, I mean, meant involvement. But I do know what you mean about running around after the guy on the P50 because if he gives his kid a little shove here and there, it helps him get up quicker, you know, might win the race. I mean, I think the fathers used to just wear running shorts and shoes and just race their kid around the track as fast as they could. It's probably more of a way to keep them fit as well, isn't it? <laughs> True. <laughs> I guess that kind of stuff, though, it's, it's like, to a certain point, maybe you're going to need some encouragement in that. But if you don't have the passion for the sport, in my opinion anyway, I don't think any parent can fully manufacture that. Because at some point, you're going to just say, like, no, I don't want to do this today, and then have a bit of sulk. Um, so did you feel like you definitely found that passion again once you started doing mountain biking that had kind of faded with motocross? You know, I don't think my passion for, for racing motorbikes is ever has ever faded i think i've still loved racing motorbikes and and love riding motorbikes but when you're trying to be competitive and you can't reach your goals because something's holding you back it helps you deviate into something else you know i'm, I'm super competitive if you haven't noticed that you know like <laughs> when you're at a race and you, you you're only riding possibly once a week and you you're competing against guys who are riding three three, four times a week, it's hard to maintain the, the fitness level and the pace. And I think that's where I lost interest, you know. And I'd raced it quite a bit through, through a young, you know, from, from a young age. So um, I, I don't regret moving. I still every now and then go back and do some local races, which is always good fun. Um, but, yeah, the bike, the, the mountain bike has definitely opened up a whole new world for me. Awesome. Um, uh, well, I mean, I'm going to s- skip ahead sort of in terms of your career. And um, like you said, yes, you could probably tell you're quite competitive. You, I'm sure most of <laughs> the listeners who have never even heard of you before listening now 
might have guessed already, you're also an incredibly relaxed and zen person. But what the other reason why, the main reason why we're speaking to you is because over the last 20 years, you are categorically the most successful downhill mountain bike racer in history. And that sort of career span is very similar. And I'm not sure whether you've ever thought about this to a MotoGP's own Valentino Rossi. You know, you've been, you've won, you've been competitive at the top for 20 years in the sport. You've seen so many different sort of bike technical changes. You've overcome so many different rivals and you're still going into 2020 when the season actually gets underway. No one's going to be counting you out for World Cup wins, overalls or even world championships. And so I want to ask you, basically, do you consider yourself, as many people call you, the GOAT of mountain biking what what do you think of that title because in all these videos i've looked at me you've never addressed it but other people have just gone Greg, the goat here he is <laughs> yeah you know i, I don't know I, uh, people do bring it up a lot and you know I'm, I'm slowly embracing it to a degree but at the same time i didn't you know when i started mountain biking or any sport really i didn't ever think it would ever happen so it's not something that i'd set out to be and and it's kind of happened it's just happened along the way that's really cool. So what what do you think then is the secret to that? Because longevity, obviously a lot of people may come up against an injury just from pure bad luck and that ends up cutting their career short in any sport. Mm. But there are people like you and Valentino, it's actually crazy that you've kind of fit in a whole two decades of being so competitive. What is the secret to that? You know, I, I have no idea. I, I don't feel like I get older. I don't feel any older today as I did, you know, five or six years ago. And I think it's kind of possibly hindered my career a little bit too because everyone, you know, when, you, when you're reaching your 30s, everyone goes, you know, you're coming towards the end of the career, you need to start planning ahead and start other things and get ready for life after racing. And, you know, now I'm 38 and I'm, I'm still feeling just as competitive. You know, I was, I was watching back on some videos and, you know, when you, when you compare Valentino Rossi to myself now and parallel the two careers, you know, I, I'm not sure which mode of GP it was last year, but you know, he looked like he was going to win one. And I think he was in second America. And then you had, yeah, yeah, and then you had Alex Rint, like a, a new young guy just coming in and just pepping him. And that's exactly what happened to me last year. You know, as soon as I had a great race into second place or into the lead at the time, looked like I was going to win. And then another young <laughs> when she just came in and put me and and so it's hard but that that's what keeps me going you know when i'm training that i'm thinking of those races that were so close and so each year i feel that um, when i come to the end of the season i look over my bike and i go you know these are the areas where i need to work on my bike and get ready for the for the, the season to come i go to myself and i go well where can i adjust you know i felt like i was really strong on these sections but i didn't feel as agile as i should i should be coring a little bit quicker and i set up a whole new program with my trainers for the following season so i think that you know i'm just that competitive that i've never felt at any point in my career that i'm in the prime position in in terms of my equipment and in my body i always felt like there's room to improve and i guess valentino must have that same mentality to some degree or else you know i'm sure if he felt like he was the greatest and just kept you know going for and going for and, and had no room to improve i mean it must get boring mm. you know winning or, or being racing for that long you know if, if you're not improving and, and trying to 
find new ways to go quicker and faster it's got to be boring yeah when whenever the question gets put to him about when are you going to retire because obviously he's he's more than 40 years old now and you know you're you're 38 so he's obviously he had he had it 10 years ago people say when 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 are you going to call it a day um and the thing he keeps coming back to whenever it comes around contract time again is he says i'll sign if i still think i can get podiums and wins and that's clearly then the thing that sort of keeps driving him that is so long as he's got that feeling that he's able to have those top three positions, well, then why would he stop? Because he still loves it. Is that similar to your sort of motivation then? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I think at, at this point in probably both our careers, regardless if we were competitive, we'd probably still be able to get some kind of ride to keep racing. Hmm. But I feel like if I'm not competitive and I'm not able to, to gun for a podium and to gun for a win, I feel I'll be taking a position of a couple of other riders that could utilize that position a bit more. So the, when the day comes that I'm not competitive, then it's definitely uh, when I will pull the plug. But, you know, right now, and I'm still loving racing and I'm really missing it right now. Um, and I feel like I am competitive. I'll, I'll keep racing. That's pretty interesting then that your focus when you're thinking about it is more, well, I'm taking up space here that a younger rider could make more of rather than you you don't seem to, do you focus on the idea of your legacy at all or going out on top kind of in a great grand <laughs> grand finale at the end of your career or is it literally well, just like, well, I can't make the most of this anymore so I shouldn't try? I mean, I think it's important to go out on top. To, to some degree, but how do you know when you, you know, that you're not going to be up there again? You know, I think there comes a point where, where both kind of situations collide where you're feeling tired of racing and it's really a big effort to, to get out and train and you're not training as hard. And, and I think that's when it's time to pull it rather than let those results slide to the other back of the pack, just dribbling around. Um, I think it's better to just, uh, you know, guard when you're still competitive and when you still want to win. I think you, you'll realize the point when training is way too hard and it outweighs that moment that you're having in racing. That's really cool. I get that. So let's let's talk about the the concept of of the greatest of all time a bit more then, because I think in our own world we've got we've got a few different definitions. It's it's something which you know from. So I, I also work on MotoGP's social media team, and Fran works in the main communications department. You don't see MotoGP as the championship declaring anybody as the goat. It's sort of a thing because it's it's such a, a sort of fan debate because you've got different definitions of it. You've got in your case where it's undeniable you are the most decorated rider of all time. But then you've also got, you could argue that the greatest of all time needs to have an aspect of influence on the sport. So, okay, maybe Rossi hasn't got the amount of wins that Agostini has, but you can't deny that anybody else has had more of an impact on the sport over the last 20 years than he has. But then you've also, some people would say, well, this is the uh, person I think is the greatest to ever riding a motorcycle. Some people give that accolade to Casey Stoner. Some people will now give it to Mark Marquez and Mark Marquez could go on to destroy all records there ever could be. So what's what would be your interpretation of, of the GOAT, you know, both in your world of, of mountain biking and also us as well? Don't worry, this doesn't have no. to be like, this is how I see myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think in mountain biking, it's a lot different to, to motorcycle racing. We're a lot younger sport. So our history doesn't go back to like the Agostinis and everyone else. You know, we've got a generation that I raced against when I, when I was coming up. So um, Steve Peets and Nicholas Vulio, you know, they were the greats uh, when I joined in. And I was managed to... to compete against them and beat them at the same time 
Um, I think where it more comes into line is every time there's been a new generation of riders that managed to um, challenge or, or at least beat the rider who's brought this new level of racing. So um, over the last 20 years, we've had Nicholas Vuglio, we've had Steve Pete, Sam Hill, Aaron Gwynn, and now we've got the, the young Luke Bruni. I've also managed to beat now and then, but I think I just need to beat him a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. It seems like as well, you guys have a bit of a different kind of rivalry to what we can see in MotoGP. Seems a little bit more focused on the on-track, maybe a little bit more relaxed off-track. But how is that to deal with when, like you say, you've been there kind of from the start and then you do get these younger guys coming in? Like we saw Marquez in MotoGP appear and just obliterate what should be happening uh, within a couple of races. How is that when you're one of the other guys who's been at the crest of that wave and then is like, okay, how am I going to cope with this now? How am I going to bring it back and uh, show them a little bit who's boss every now and then? Yeah, it's pretty hard sometimes because, you know, over the years you've had to adjust the way you look at the bike and how you how you set your bike up. You know, being such a young sport, you're, you know, I go back 15 years, our suspension was really slow and, and, and soft reba- uh, soft re- uh, compression where now it's, it's super hard compression and fast rebound. It's completely opposite to what we had. And so you've, I've had to adjust over time to my bike like, and my riding to, to be able to stay with the pack or in the pack. Um, the rivalry side is, is, is quite a lot different to, to motorsport. You know, we, it doesn't matter what I can do on track. It's not going to affect the race run of anyone else. And as soon as you can comprehend that in downhill racing, it probably gives you a little bit of an edge over your competitors that once you just focused on your race run and, and you're the fastest you can be on that race run without with eliminating anyone else out of your mind and you totally focus on yourself, I think that will create a, a lot more confidence in the rider. Whereas uh, when you're on the start line with a bunch of other guys and you maybe make an aggressive pass or, or maybe do something that, that's borderline aggressive, and you bump into someone and you knew a kid on the block, then you suddenly get a, you know, you know, he's an aggressive rider or, you know, and then that kind of <laughs> makes it a bit tougher when you're bumping elbows with someone because you might not necessarily mean to, but it happens and then you might just get called out of it. Where in our race, we don't have that. Exactly, you know. That's really interesting. And there, there, there's, I mean, there's a few things I want to pick up from this. I mean, I'll, I'll come back to sort of the, the technical side a little bit later. But out of all these guys who have come through in your time, you talk about obviously most recently has been Lloyd Bruni um, and Omri Piron, like coming and blowing the field apart, bringing just faster than ever. Um, is there anyone, can you give us some examples of people who've come in, they've come through the under 23 ranks and then they're suddenly in the senior field. You've watched them go down a mountain. You've gone, huh, yep, I'm going to have to switch it up again then. Yeah. Who's, who's the most sort of standout examples of that? Possibly the most standout is Sam Hill. You know, he had a completely different style of riding. He was he could ride these really tight lines um, and and super aggressive in, in his run. And he could just find time out of nowhere. And it, it forced me to try and ride, instead of adapting my riding style to try and, and ride how he rode, and, and that's what most people would try and do. It, it made me focus more on my own style of riding and work harder on trying to, you know, ride the way I feel is quicker for my type of style and, and body type versus his, you know. He'd ride a tight line. I prefer to be off the brakes, just railing the outside. That's just the style of riding I ride. 
Um, but he was just really tough to beat. He was just an incredible rider who could just, you know, be up by three, four seconds in the middle of nowhere. Just not sure how or why. Um, just incredibly gifted technically. That's pretty interesting then, because obviously in MotoGP, we've seen like Marquez coming in. Now everyone's dragging their elbow. Uh, we had Rossi with the leg dangle in the breaking zone that a lot of people now do. But then you also do have people, certainly to my mind, the first example would be like Jorge Lorenzo, who, other than I think one moment in that race at Bruno, has never dangled his leg, has never gone the Marquez aggressive style at all, and really seemed to double down on being like, right, okay, I can beat you, but everything I do now has to be so perfect. And like there's the aggression that they learn, it kicks up the gear of the competition, but it doesn't really make them change. It just makes you really double down. It sounds like you kind of just went for that as well. Yeah, I kind of had to, you know, I, I couldn't ride these inside lines. I couldn't ride this tight line race. And I think, you know, when someone comes in with a new style of riding, it always distracts your focus on, oh, maybe they've beaten you because of this new, maybe dragging an elbow or dangling a leg, this you know, and then half of it, I think, is just sucking out the competitors with this new angle to <laughs> racing, which then boosts the confidence of the guy who's doing it. So then he just gains a little more. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's totally psychological. It's no, it's It probably has nothing to do with the race. But that's where downhill, you know, you're practicing, you see the guy once or twice, and he's on this really tight line, and you know he's really quick because he won the weekend before. So now you start to think that that's the best line to be on. But, you know, you're really fine on the line you know, a meter on the outside, just railing the outside as fast as you can. You're probably quicker carrying more speed, but suddenly you're starting to, to uh, second guess yourself if this is the line you need to be on. And that's what makes downhill racing so hard is, is not knowing where your competitors are or what they're doing. And uh, if that inside line is actually really good or is the guy just teasing you <laughs> and, and, you know, working on your confidence. That's so funny. We we um a couple of things to that is we we spoke to a comedian called Ross Noble the other week. I don't know if you heard of him. He's massive in the UK and Australia, maybe not South Africa. But he was joking about how um he thinks Rossi when he retires is going to come out and say, "Hi guys, by the way, the leg dangle just did it to make you see if you could all do it as well." <laughs> it doesn't actually do anything else. So, so I think you know. I mean, I, I mean, clearly so many of them do it. It has some kind of benefit, even if it just makes them feel comfortable. But that sort of psychological aspect of doing something just to really suck at your competitors seems really interesting. And even more so with you guys, like you said, because it's not a mass start race; it's a time trial, and it's not as if you can actually go out and watch them on the course whilst they're racing either. You know, the only view you've got maybe is if you're already down the bottom and you're watching the TV of them coming down. You know, so it's yeah. I guess it's just such a, a different psychological battle almost. It is, you know, I, I broke my arm at uh, the beginning of 2018 season. So I got to watch a couple of races on the sideline. And now I'm walking down the track watching these guys in training. And training for me is the most stressful time. It's, you know, I'm trying to get comfortable on my bike, set the bike up, choose the lines and try and find the, the quickest way down. And I'm watching these guys in the sectional track in Austria. And it's on that particular track, it's probably the meat of the track where you're going to possibly make the most time or lose the most time. And I'm watching these guys and they try to do all these different lines. And I'm just watching on the sideline going, well, if he just sticks to the main line and rides it really fast and simple, it's going to be quicker than all these different lines that they try. But yet when I'm on the track the following year, I'm exactly in that same position <laughs> Panicking if I need to be two inches to the right or two inches to the left, instead of just you know having the confidence of going bomb down the middle, 
take the left hander, stick to the main line, up the section, and go for it. Do you know yeah, what? <laughs> it, it, you get you get so caught up in that moment. Do you know what you just had a real experience of during that time? You got a real impression of what it's like to be a sofa racer and the armchair experts who are looking at going, <laughs> no, what he needs to do is he needs to break at this point and turn and stuff like that, but then put it into reality is is completely different thing, isn't it? Oh, for sure it is. But I mean, there's there's always a bit of truth to some, you know, armchair racers for sure. Oh, that, wow, that's the fairest comment I've ever heard about them. <laughs> I don't know. I always I always think if someone's got something to say, it's it's worth the listen. But you've got to also be able to filter filter some of it, you know. That's yeah, some opinion, of it is really, just yeah. an angry person yelling at you from the other <laughs> side of a screen. But I guess some yeah. of it, I mean. There's a reason why so many elite sportsmen will watch events back and look at competitors. Maybe there is that person. If you've been a fan for, you know, a decade, maybe you do have something useful to contribute. But sometimes it is like, hey, guys, let's calm down. Yeah, (laughs) back to the basics. (laughs) Exactly. Something armchair um, competitor never seems to remember. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so also we one of the things we wanted to talk about was south africa as we can see it in its gloriousness behind you <laughs> um <laughs> obviously you're kind of an sporting icon now as you are the greatest of all time in your sport we're, we're gonna keep saying it sorry um but now you have guys like brad binder and darren binder as well his brother starting to represent you know, at higher and higher levels. Obviously, Brad, Moto3 champion, now GP rider. What is it like kind of being... Because like you said, it's a... Or like we said earlier, it's quite a big country, but it's quite a sort of narrow amount of guys who are in that really elite category representing on the world stage. How is that to be one of those guys who's kind of like flying the flag? I'm going to discount the Springboks on this because <laughs> yeah. obviously... Yeah. I, I would say, like in, in non-traditional sports, we've we've done pretty well, you know, for for being such a small country, really, and uh, with less exposure to to sport. I mean, motor racing. There's been some great riders coming out of South Africa. There was Jan Ekrold from back in what the 70s or 60s. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. I think he might have been from Peter Marisburg as well. Wow. Um, I definitely know his brother's still around. So that is some. Yeah, see, so, you said don't put me on the spot with some knowledge, but that's some niche knowledge right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So motor racing's been, you know, a great. Um, we've had a great history of motorsport from South Africa, and then there's just been this gap of, of, of you know, no real big fireworks. And now Brad Binder's just come on, and it's just created another buzz for for motorsport, which is really cool and it's really needed because it it does help the the local racing pickup and, and the local scene, you know, more guys will get involved because they're not able to support and follow and then they want to compete themselves. So it's really cool to see the benders, both of them doing really well. Yeah. And um, it's, have you, I, you know, I, it, it, like we said, like on a, on a traditional sport, cricket, rugby, we do, we do pretty good. And, and this whole new wave of, of untraditional sports, mountain biking, motorsport, um, and there's there's other sports where, where there's just this random South African that will just appear up in the, <laughs> in the top view. And it's it's kind of cool, but yet we don't really, you know, like I said, the first time I met Brad was he had a local uh, motocross track. So it's not like we know each other very well, but we, we, we're quite a passionate country. So we do try and support each other as much as we can. 
I worry now the way you said that that we've made it sound like it's some sort of sporting Illuminati and that you all <laughs> hang out on the weekend <laughs> because of course you I wish it was I think it'd be pretty good yeah. <laughs> well I just imagine it'd be one of the best bries you could ever have couldn't it really but, um, <laughs> I want to ask true. you about that then your 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 impact on the sport in South Africa because you must be an icon because you're you're an icon of mountain biking but has that translated back home as well and what what sort of changes have you seen in terms of the cycling scene over there since your all your successes? Well, the mountain bike scene has has definitely uh, blown up over the last ten years, ten fifteen years. But it, it moved to more marathon racing rather than gravity, and so I was kind of just left out of everything as this uh, crazy guy who races downhill because we all stick to marathon racing and we ride on dirt roads. So. Although he's a part of it, he's not really. And we kind of watch him on weekends, but we just ride marathon and, and compete in marathon. So it, it, I was kind of uh, excluded somewhat from the, the mountain bike community as a whole. Is that because you're uh, too cool for it, really? No, it's just because they <laughs> thought the Cape Epic was the world championship of mountain biking. And, and that's what everyone sees as the pinnacle of mountain biking in South Africa. So, um, But in the last couple of years, it's been quite a turn into gravity. And a lot more guys riding in Jura, and it's cool. We've got a, we've got a, you know, we're from a pretty small city, but we've got a really decent-sized scene. So um, it's starting to happen. But you know, it, it's really hard when when our currency is linked to the dollar and the rand dollar is very uh, weak right now. It makes bikes kind of expensive. And bikes are pretty expensive as it is, but it just makes that equipment that much more, and, and that's really tough on on the local guys trying to get into it. Yeah, I can imagine as well, obviously, geographically, much like a few guys down under as well, a lot of these kind of events are often so based in Europe or North America when you reach a certain level. That's obviously a whole added challenge as well when you're kind of on the other side of the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. And, and you know, I think with Red Bull TV doing such a great job on, on uh, getting that the, the coverage out there that also helps but then again you you need to you know make the decision at some point if you're actually going to have a crack at this and, and go to Europe and go and race and and you will find a lot more South African kids are taking that chance and going over we've probably got about 10 or 12 kids now trying to set themselves up in Europe and and give it a go which is really cool I mean it's it's you know whether it's finishing school and having a few a, a gap a couple gap years and then trying to race and, and make something of it and then going back to study or making success, success of it, it's, I think it's a good avenue to, to tour the world, see what it's like, and also get some racing in. That's really cool. And what what sort of things then do you think that will translate to what Brad can probably expect over the next couple of years? Because obviously he's already a world champion, very nearly a second, two-time world champion in Moto2 as well, but now as a MotoGP rider, what what can he expect to see in terms of appreciation from from back home and sort of things that he's going to end up having to do, you know, appearances here and there or something like that over the next few years? Oh, Brad's pretty busy when he gets back. I, I've yeah. seen quite a lot of advertising about him getting around. So so he's really getting the um, acknowledgement already. So it's really cool to see that the, the country supported him, you know, because I don't think uh, motorsport is, is that popular locally and i think it has the same thing being a pretty expensive thing to do um for our, for our economy but um being such a, a global athlete like he is i, I think it, everyone now sits down when he's watching and, and supports him just as much as they support the the springboks playing rugby 
That's really cool. What's going that on behind cool. you there? I've got to ask that. Is someone blowing mowing the lawn? <laughs> <laughs> it's the neighbour cutting his grass. I think he's okay, I was like, I was wondering if it was just suddenly going to come into view and it'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was waiting for. Not. I could hear it for a bit and I was like, is someone just going to go in the background? And that's where we mentioned it, but oh, fair play. <laughs> um, and, and then, so yeah, about, about sort of Brad and Darren, then you met him last year doing motocross at your local track. Where was that then? Yeah, they're really cool guys. I mean, they, 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 um, yeah, they, they're very yin and yang. You know, Brad, quite preserved and calm, and Darren's quite out there and wild. And you, you can see it both on their riding styles. You know, the, the track's got a few different jumps, and, and Darren is on this 252 stroke. And, you know, as soon as he could put that bike in a straight line, he had a handful trying to jump these jumps. <laughs> and uh, Brad was a very neat and just, you know, precise. So. Yeah, I, I guess it happens when you've got a younger brother. He's probably normally going to do the, the wild one I put to. <laughs> I guess as well, if you know Chaz Ben Davis, like we said at the start of the episode, have you gone riding with those guys in Andorra as well? Or have they tried out some downhill with you? Well, when I did go to Andorra, Chaz was, Chaz was coming back from uh, a broken collarbone. Ah, and, okay, uh, yeah, so... so <laughs> He wasn't riding much mountain bikes, but um, he took me out to the motard track and he was on this little mini bike. He was just, uh, I, I guess, trying to see how his collarbone was doing. And, and uh, I got on this this motard bike, which I don't, you know, growing up on, on dirt, it's completely different to the way those bikes track in corners. And, you know, I thought I was, I was doing pretty good. And then um, John came flying past clipped a little side, got a bit sideways, clicked clacking down the straight, but just kept it open, straightened up and took the corner like nothing had happened, but I had my GoPro on. Yeah. And I said to John Flip, it looked like you were going to go down when you came past me. And he was like, oh, no, it was pretty cool. So I showed him the footage and he's pretty surprised how sideways he got past me. So. That's hilarious. But, um, it, was, it was a great day. It was super good. But I know those guys ride a lot of mountain bikes in the off season and it's definitely by their training. So I'm sure they're pretty decent at it. Yeah, hundred percent. That's really cool, and it's it's a shame that we see so many motors, motor GP riders, motor two, motor three. They all do cycling, but it's all mainly road cycling and stuff like that. But occasionally, a few of them do a bit of downhill and stuff like that. But I imagine they would be absolutely phenomenal at it. You know, that sort of depth, depth perception, the feel of the front tire. It, it would be different, obviously, but I yeah. imagine sort of that natural feel they got with the bike would mean they're pretty mean on it. Yeah, I, I would. I would imagine, I'd imagine they'd be pretty good. You know, I'm sure it's hard within the season. It's you know, summertime, all the bike parks open. I'm I'm sure it's hard for them to get on a mountain bike and risk getting hurt. You know, riding in a bike park. So that's probably one of the reasons why they stick to the road. Um, so yeah, it would be good to get the guys out on, on some downhill and, and see how they go. Awesome. Maybe straight after they've retired, when that risk isn't such a worry, you can uh, <laughs> do some sort of uh, master camp <laughs> in the mountains and see what they've got. I was going to actually just ask before we go on to the final round, sorry, because uh, we do have a little quick final, final round. round final, final round. Um, when, when are we going to manage to get Greg Minar to come to a MotoGP race then? Well, I think a few. Um, yeah. I did. You know, like I said, I don't like watching stuff, but I do enjoy it. You know, I must say, there, there's a bit of me that just makes me get so jealous watching these guys rip around. Yeah. Um, but I have been to one, and then I got um, Randy Mamola offered to take me for a lap on his bike on that two-seater. 
And that was that possibly the cool. scariest thing I've ever done. You've done it. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Oh, man. It was in Estoril. And I remember going down that start straight. It had been raining and there were patches of, of, of water on, on all the corners. And we took off down this first straight and we leaned. And we headed down to the corner. And I'm on this, like holding these two little handles on the tank. And, you know, I'm quite a bit taller than Randy. So my knees are by his ears and he's coming up the straight. And he's trying to lean this bike in and I'm trying to lean it out. And eventually we overshot the brake and just went straight. So he turned around and like, I'll tap you on the knee, just lean in and have confidence. I was like, oh, there's no ways I'm having confidence. I can see it's wet. I can see over the top it's wet. And, you know, like the total difference of, of riding a bike off-road where you lean the bike in and your body, you keep your body upright to a motorbike where you're trying to lean on the inside of it. I just couldn't get the hang of it. I honestly thought I was going to die. It was, uh, you know, an Estoril, it's got that like long straight with a slight bend in. And I did not, it felt like we we're doing about 400 Ks an hour. And I'm just thinking I've got no strength holding this, these narrow little things in the handlebar. And here we go. And I'm just like, I've got, I feel like the leathers don't, you know, I've never had to crash in leathers. Don't know how well they work. It just doesn't feel like much right now. And it, yeah, I mean, it was a great experience to have, but uh, my heart rate must have at least been about 200 the whole lap. That is brilliant. I do worry sometimes about non-athletes on those situations because you're you're an elite athlete, so you're ready for the thrills and spills of life. But like a normal kind of pedestrian coming out the civilian world, getting on the back of a motorbike with Randy Mamola and then doing 300 Ks, it must be even more a vicious wake up when you set off. I don't know. I'd probably like to do it without knowing what was coming, you know, like without having any bike experience. Because then you just lean in and you just enjoy it. And, you know, yeah, you're going fast, but wow, this guy's great. Meantime, I'm thinking that Randy might have lost it over the years and he wants to aim in in this wet corner, you know, with all my great road experience that I have, yeah, which yeah. is zero. Course, I'm trying yeah. to feel like I need to lead this bike the opposite. That is so funny because I watched um, last year when we were at Mugello, we had two F1 drivers here. You had Charles Leclerc and Antonio Giovinazzi. And on the Saturday, Giovinazzi, the Alfa Romeo, Kimi Raikkonen teammate, I watched him go out. It was his second time on the two-seater and he literally trotted out and leapt on that bike and he was just beaming and so ready for it. Yeah, you would have think it's sort of an F1 driver, almost a bit like you. They almost don't, they're not sure of the level of control that the rider's got. You know, they wouldn't be, yeah. they're like, oh, I can, I can handle the speed, no problem, if it's me in control, but not with somebody else. But he was loving it. It's just so fascinating to hear the complete opposite from you. I mean, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I and I guess, like you said, it's definitely a control thing, you know. Um, it's the same when I fly, you know. I, I hate flying. I'm absolutely shit scared of heights. Same. And if I'm in the airplane, I'm sitting there like clenching the, the armrest and the seatbelts just strapped in. <laughs> And, and if if it's smooth, I'm I'm relatively okay. But if there's any bit of bumping, it's I feel like I need to go into the cockpit and check what's going on because <laughs> you know you don't know if the scars like just rallying this plane or what it's doing or just to stay calm or you feel like you could kind of help out in some kind of way. But yeah, I think that's just the control side. That's I so genuinely I have exactly the same thing. Obviously, not got any pilots training. I did one flying lesson a few years ago that my mum got me for my birthday in like a little biplane. And I was completely fine, even when I'm like learning and like pitching it everywhere, because it's me, even though that's obviously far more risky because I have zero skill. But as soon as I'm in a 747 and it goes a little bit, I'm like, what's happened there though? I feel like I should go and check. 
maybe they need instructions. All I've got to say about that, Greg, is it's a good job that you don't have a job which requires you to fly all over the world with that sort of fear, then, isn't it? <laughs> no, tell me about it. Tell me yeah. about it. <laughs> okay, so but should like we... You were saying, when, when is the next MotoGP? What is the schedule this year? Is it out? It should be by the time this is published. It should be out. Yes, yes. it is. It, oh, it will be. Yeah, we're, this is this is going to be published in a couple of weeks uh, from the time of recording. Um, but yeah, it will be published. We're we're off to Hareth at the end of July. Yeah, oh, cool. I think we don't actually genuinely. We don't have the calendar right now yeah. um, internally at the moment. Uh, but hopefully in a couple of days, and then the turnaround between us getting it and it being published should be short. So it should be coming. Yeah, so we still cool. should have uh, should have about twelve or so races, or I think that was the aim that everyone wants. And then at the end of the season, I think they're going to wait till the end of the next couple of months and um, and see whether we can actually go out of Europe as well. So it might might still get a relatively full season yet. So and you guys, when when you you're racing, you've already had your calendar released, haven't you? August September time. We have, yeah. Awesome. I think we we released it. We're going to start off in September, um, but we've already lost the round. So. Uh, which is unfortunate we lost another round but it's all going to stay in Europe I think it's just um, makes sense a little easier right now yeah, yeah. cool yeah. yeah so maybe I need to be need to come out I think the last motor GPR was that was uh, Laguna Seca probably 2012 was that so, around the time of a Sea Otter Classic or something like that or some US World Cup round or? no ah. no um, I'd, I'd Randy was out and and I was in town, so I, I met up with them and went out. Ah, oh, cool! Awesome. Yeah. Laguna, Laguna, and that whole part of California is beautiful. I, is. I understand why we now have Cota on our calendar, of course, which is also a beautiful track. But Laguna, I went there for Superbike because that's where I started, and it's just it's a special place. Yeah, no, it is good. No, often I, I remember when Casey Stoner was still racing. I used to get a call from. Um, Chris from Alpine Stars, and uh, I'd, I'd be at a race, and he was like, "Hey, Greg, sorry to bother you. Uh, I know you you've got qualifying tomorrow and stuff, but um, we're at Laguna Seca, and uh, I'm with Casey. And he wants to try and ride the downhill track. Can you sh- tell us where it is? Because there's a downhill track that's pretty mellow <laughs> out the back. And so they were hunting around, and like I'm like, "Well, you got to go over this hill to the right. So you can see this mound, and that's the start." And <laughs> and so, yeah, I think guys are ripping up the trail down there. Yeah, because I forgot you used to be with Alpine Stars, didn't you? So I guess you would have had yeah. a lot of connections and, and things that sort of way, wouldn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah, we developed the, the mountain bike stuff in, in 2004 hmm. when I was riding a Honda. So, um, yeah, it was a great experience. Awesome. Well, should we do the, the Kenwood Quickfire round then, Fran? Yeah, the one that you've just said it like we've already warned him. Yes. Um, <laughs> so traditionally at the end, uh, we have a Kenwood Quickfire, obviously sponsored by Kenwood, uh, who also give us our radios in the paddock and motor GP. So um, good, cool. good partner extending that. But basically, we either do kind of quickfire questions or more word association. We thought with you being a native English speaker, we'll go all in with the uh, the quickfire questions. Again, don't worry, it's not a quiz. It's not knowledge based. It's personal preference. Yeah, and sort of instant reaction <laughs> stuff. You can keep it quick, or you can you can go on a bit of a tangent if you want. We realised we should rename it to the Kenwood Not So Quickfire. To be honest, <laughs> sometimes yeah. <laughs> um, so shall I start? Yeah, go yes, for it. Yes, let's do. Okay, so we start off always with a very simple one. What do you prefer, coffee or tea? Coffee. 
I feel like we're showing our Britishness by continuing to start with that question, to be honest, but we'll, we'll roll with it. Um, who's your top sporting hero or who were your heroes when you were growing up? Heroes growing up was Greg Albertain was a South, Af- South African motocross rider, and that was my uh, all-time hero growing up. What do you prefer, supercross or motocross? Supercross. Uh, what's the best place in the world to ride a mountain bike? I'd like to say home, but it's definitely Europe. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's Andorra, there's Morzine, there's, oh, there's too many places. That's what's so great about a mountain bike. Awesome. Uh, yes or no, air horns should be a part of every MotoGP race, like in downhill, not just at Mugello. Every MotoGP. <laughs> I think every sporting event, even like Wimbledon, like get them out there. Just add some spice. <laughs> Can you imagine Wimbledon? <laughs> be nuts. Imagine that would be a bit chaotic. Uh, what's your favourite MotoGP track? I'd have to go with Estoril because it's the only one I've been around. Even okay. though the experience wouldn't pertain to it being your favourite, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your dream motorcycle on or off-road? It's an off-road. Yeah. I just, okay. you know, I, I love motocross bikes. Which is your favourite motocross bike? What is your dream one to have? I've got a KTM 250 now, which is my dream right now. And there's nothing more that I would want. Oh, that's nice. Cool. Yeah. Um, who's the person who taught you the most about riding bikes? Motor bikes or otherwise? Your dad? Okay. Both my dad, yeah. Oh, I yeah. thought that would be the nice answer. Uh, what is the best event on the uh, UCI World Cup calendar? Andorra. Felnord in Andorra. Mm-hmm. Why is that? The circuit it's or the place? Got, it's, yeah, the, 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 the track is amazing for, for riding. The, the riders just love the track, and there, there's always quite a lot of atmosphere in the Finnish area. With um, Yeah, it's just somehow in the mountains, it's a beautiful one. And, of course, there's also Fort William. I mean... Scotland, the, the atmosphere there is also incredible. Hmm. Um, so those, those, are, those are my top two. Cool. Okay, cool. What about three sporting icons to have to have dinner with? Who would you pick? Or to choose to uh, have dinner with? I made that sound like a torture. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Can some of them... Yeah, I would, I'd have to go with um, Greg Albertain. Uh Valentino Rossi and Neymar. I think Neymar, the football player, would have some stories. Okay, that's an interesting, interesting. combo. Yeah, never didn't didn't actually th- pick that one out at all. Actually, okay. So, one tip for staying as calm, relaxed, and zen in life as Greg Minar. <laughs> Jeez, my life is not calm or relaxed. <laughs> you see it. The only bit that is it. calm and relaxed is lockdown. <laughs> That's been the best thing for me. But my, my like a holiday to me is not relaxing because I want to go surfing and I want to go riding motorbikes and bicycles and motor and it's just chaotic. So there, there is nothing. The, the only thing that gets me calm is maybe a, a barbecue or something with friends. That's just the ultimate. And that's usually not very relaxing either. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So tip there is have a barbecue with your friends at the moment, socially distanced. <laughs> exactly. So what about what is the most nerve wracking part of what you do or the thing that makes you the most nervous? You said training before, right? 
true what makes me nervous well racing itself makes me really nervous it's it pushing yourself to to that far out of you know either your control or to the limits of your control skimming past rocks and trees and everything else um that makes me nervous <laughs> okay top of your bucket list motor gp race to attend i've heard valencia is pretty good Okay, interesting. I I like Valencia. Sometimes the track gets a bit of a kind of uh, bad rap. Don't even know that. There you go. I was really? like, what's the uh, the good word for that? Um, but the atmosphere, because it's in that kind of natural amphitheater. I love Valencia. It's super cool. Don't they always end the season year. in Valencia? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you it's often get like good. that's the one to go to. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. it's it's cool. a great one. Magello is probably another that... one, and Phillip Island as well. I would say personally. Oh right. Yeah. Okay. So I should put those on my bucket list then, if those are the best three. We'll hook you up. Or I'll pass Starscout or someone can, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so describe uh, Mooton. I don't know what happened there. Describe mountain biking in three words or less. Um, Peaceful. Exciting. And social. Nice. And now okay. describe Mudder GP in three words or less. Intense, aggressive, and wild. The opposite. <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool. Okay, final one then. No, that was the final one, wasn't it? Final, oh, no, final one. I, I can't read, sorry. Uh, why should everyone listening ride either bikes or... Or motorbikes. I should say bicycles, shouldn't I? I think I say bikes now to mean both. It's hard to tell. Why would you say someone should get into either of those sports? What's in it for them? What's the best motorbikes thing about and it? bicycles? Mm. Yeah. Either. Ah, oh, it's just uh, you know I think both hand in hand work well for each other. Bicycles, you know, obviously it's a, a healthier lifestyle and living. Motorbikes get to see more places, get to tour. Um, I, I just think you definitely need both in your garage. I don't think it's worth living without. That's awesome. Yeah, because we did yeah, that before yeah. with um, with Ross Noble, who's a big sort of motorcyclist, and it's nice to have someone fight the corner for both of them as well. Um, so that is the Kenwood Quickfire. Greg, this has been so much fun getting to know you. Um, and yeah, I... Thanks, man. Thanks a lot for reaching out. It's it's good to be a part yeah, of Yeah, thanks. To it. it was great to thanks, chat to bro. someone. That I kind of know, obviously, like we said, I've watched you many videos while Matt's had it on in the living room and I've been like, oh, this is actually quite good. I think I've made a mistake, not showing interest. So hope you enjoyed that good chat with uh, Greg Minar. I know I certainly did. Very chill guy. Very good chat, I think, if you, you would agree. I know you were quite excited to talk to him. I was incredibly excited to talk to Greg Minar. What an absolute legend. <laughs> So things, we've started doing this now, the things you need to go and search for after you listen to the episode. We did mention them earlier, but the This Is PT YouTube series, definitely. This is how I got interested in it. Never watched anything before. Unmissable. And then Matt had it on in the in the living room. And then, yeah, the Team Syndicate series after that a little bit, was it not? Yes, it followed after. After Steve retired, they followed up with the, with the Syndicate okay. series from this, 2016, this I think. I think. And my personal favourite video for anyone who's not really been into mountain biking at all is 2011 World Champs. Yep. I keep getting covered oh, yep. wrong, I'm sorry. With uh, Rob um, Warner. 
the commentator. Yes, and the commentator going crazy over Danny Hart's run <laughs> is genuinely one of the greatest things of sports broadcasting you will ever see. So Go and look for it. Very, very similar, of course, to you and I commentating on the Age of Talent Cup, British Talent Cup. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, it really is you know, brilliant. That's a real classic, that is. Um, so, uh, yeah, check that out. And for me, one one more thing you guys got to check out. We mentioned it a little bit. Uh, you can see in the background of that whole uh, interview, if you're actually watching on YouTube, beautiful scenery behind beautiful valley that is the peter uh, peter maritzburg sort of valley that you have there greg's house overlooking the world cup a world championship track where he won the world championships there in 2013 in his own backyard and i think that is probably one of those most badass things you could do as a sporting competitor to have your house built so every morning when you walk out of your bedroom you overlook the place where you did one of your greatest sporting achievements you could i think that's absolutely <laughs> sensational that is- yeah, very much very cool, I think. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I think that's everything for this week. Next not week, exactly, Not exactly sure. No, what's, what's coming up coming next week? What's coming at you now, yeah. But, so uh, stay tuned. As you can see from some of the guests we've been bringing you lately, whether in paddock, out paddock, I think we're, we're doing okay on the lineup, as ever, let us know. Fun. So it should, be, it should be someone exciting. But uh, yeah, so stay tuned for more, and thank you for listening. See you next Monday. Yeah.